Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? How many got the breakfast casserole before service started? Double thumbs up. That was good, right? I'm beginning to love First Sundays at First Covenant for many different reasons. And it's a joy just to really have all ages in the worship service. So grateful for everybody who's here this morning. And before I begin the message, I want to give just a uh, kind of a challenge to any of the children and youth that are in the service. If you're following along, I want to give you four words as I start the message to see if you can find the words when I give the message, okay? So the first word is time out. The second word is Honda. The third word is treasure. And the last word is discipline, okay? So why don't you follow along, see if you can find those four words. And if you really want extra credit, count how many times I say the word wise or wisdom in the message today. Now, you better have a good counter because it's going to happen a lot. So if you come up with that number, come see me after the service. Let me know what you came up with, okay? So let's throw this picture of the first one up on the screen. Here's a meme. You may have seen this meme before. Just bought a book from Ikea. Now, if you've ever shopped from Ikea, you're understanding what's happening here. If you don't know what Ikea is, it's a furniture store, and often most of the furniture you buy you have to assemble so uh, it gives you an idea what the assembling a book might be like if you buy it from Ikea. Now, the instructions you oftentimes get from Ikea uh, on how to assemble their products aren't always the easiest to follow. And for instance, uh, here are the Ikea instructions for how to assemble a house. Let's pick this one up. There you go. That's your whole instruction manual for how to uh, construct a house. Now, you may be sitting so far back you can't see, but those little dowel pins that are in the picture... Uh, the picture is suggesting there's only 7,500 of those little dowel pins. So, you know, if you're really doing Ikea right, you count how many dowel pins you have before you start the projects. You're like, yikes, that's going to be crazy, right? So I'll be the first to admit that sometimes it seems just easier to go ahead and assemble the item without consulting the instructions. How many people have done that before? Now, I'm seeing a few wives pointing at their husbands when I, when I said that, and I would confess I would be one of those husbands. Uh, you know, sometimes that's worked out, but far more often what I end up doing is getting halfway through and realizing it's not working so well, and i got to disassemble everything, go back and read the instructions, and then put it back together. And that's kind of a perfect illustration of what we're going to do And when we learn and look at this uh, chapter 3 of Proverbs this morning. I'm going to begin with this statement. I'm never more foolish than when I'm wise. I think if we're honest, all of us would admit there have been times in our lives well, we've, been, we've proven that, that statement to be true, and undoubtedly we'll do it again. And, but hopefully this uh, passage that we're looking at today will help us to learn how to make um, at least those times become fewer and further between. And as we continue this Immerse series and we come to the place, the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs offers its readers the gift of wisdom. Solomon wrote much of the book of uh, Proverbs, and he equates wisdom to the term skill. And wisdom is the skill of living life in a God-honoring way that adapts to how God has made life work. So really what Solomon is trying to convey is when he's sharing about wisdom is he's giving wisdom to help us understand how to uh, adapt to life the way God made life to be. And when we understand it, it becomes really an excellent skill. And throughout Proverbs, Solomon is telling his son that wisdom offers life. And we should understand life in this context to have a similar meaning as Jesus saying, I have come that they may have life and life more abundantly. And so when we understand and apply the wisdom that God offers, we often know the one true God 
and we experience everlasting true joy. So this morning, again, we're looking at Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 12. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles up and look at that with me this morning. We're going to grow in God's wisdom, and we're going to learn how we can experience joy in life that is better than silver and gold. And that's literally what Solomon tells us in Proverbs. And Solomon would know. He had many things, but we know he was one of the wisest men who had ever lived on the world, so he was wise. But he also was very wealthy. He had lots of silver and gold. And as he estimated all those things, he said, Wisdom is far better than having all the silver and the gold in the world. Now, my guess is that when Mark uh, read the verses and he got to verses 5 and 6, some of those verses sounded very familiar to you. I'm going to read those again, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Perhaps you maybe have even memorized those verses. But while those two verses are certainly important, I'm going to suggest to you that the heart of this passage is really verses 7 and 8. Okay, so in particular, I want to go back and look at verse 7, which is Solomon's main point in the whole proverb. So if we look at verse 7, he says, Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So in many ways, this verse actually conveys a similar message that's found in verse 7 back in chapter 1. And many would identify Proverbs 1, 7 as the main idea of the whole book of Proverbs. And this is what Solomon says in that verse. He says, fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. So this theme verse for the entire book of Proverbs indicates that the wisdom that comes from fearing the Lord involves living as if God is God and I am not. I'm going to say that again. The fear of the Lord is living as, and knowing that God is God and I am not. And so the main idea that we're pursuing today, which comes directly from chapter 3, verse 7, is essentially the same idea phrased a bit differently. I'm never more foolish than, I, when, than when I think I'm wise. And the opposite is true. I'm never wiser than when I recognize my foolishness. So here in the verse we see a fool is wise in his own eyes. He, he trusts in what he can know, what he can figure out, what he can do. He's like the person who's putting together the furniture from the Ikea store without reading the instructions. And it might look like he knows what he's doing for a while, but ultimately he's going to have to take it all apart and read the directions and put it back together the right way. And the biggest problem is that the fool oftentimes doesn't see his folly. Even if someone else points that out, a fool chooses to still hang on to the evil and to his sin, and he refuses to listen to the reproof that is going to call him back to God and to God's ways. But the good news is, once I recognize just how foolish my own wisdom is in comparison to God's wisdom, and I choose to fear God instead, this is what I can look forward to in verse 8. Verse 8 tells us, then you will have healing for your body and strength for your bones. So the idea is that when I recognize that my own wisdom is so far less than God's wisdom, and I choose to rely upon the wisdom of God, that it brings a kind of healing to my life that I can't find anywhere else. And so all the other blessings that are promised in these verses in, in Proverbs chapter 3, uh, and these commands and these passages, are different aspects of this primary blessing that we find in verse 8. So how do I make sure that I don't become wise in my own eyes, become a fool by relying on my own wisdom? And it's a matter, I think, from Solomon's perspective, of trust in four important areas of our lives. 
I need to choose to quit trusting these aspects of my life to myself or to the wisdom of the world and trust these four aspects of my life to God. So how do I avoid becoming wise in my own eyes? Well, first I think it's trust my heart to God. To trust my heart to God. You know, most of the self-help books that we find today in our culture are really techniques that you can use to get what you want. Unfortunately, there are even churches that you'll find that will teach the same kind of thing. If you do these things, you're going to get what you want. But the Bible, and particularly the book of Proverbs, uh, they don't operate like that. The principles we find here are not about changing the world to match what we want or what we desire. They're about changing us from the inside out so that our desires match and align with the desires and the will and the thoughts of God, what God wants. And we see in these first four verses of this chapter where the word heart is used twice. And the Hebrew word that's translated heart in Proverbs can mean the muscle that's inside of our chest that pumps blood to all the parts of our body. But it also means more than that in the Hebrew language. The heart also means a person's will, our thoughts, our personality, our desires. It's our passions. That's kind of all of those things. And so uh, it's it's an immaterial part of who we are. But Solomon is instructing his son to obey God's commandments, and he's saying, don't do it just outwardly, but do it from the inside, from the heart, from the very essence of your being. And you've likely heard of the little girl who was acting out and, and acting up, but her mother told her, she said, hey, go, I need you to go sit and time out in the corner. And the little girl replied, no. And the mother got a little angry, and she said in a firm voice, you go sit in the corner right now, or there's going to be bigger consequences like you won't be able to go to your friend's birthday party tomorrow. And so the little girl trudged off into the corner. She sat down and she uh, retorted, I may be sitting on the outside, but on the inside I'm standing. Do I wonder sometimes, is that our response to God's instructions? Especially if it feels uncomfortable, we don't understand what's happening. Do we outwardly, we obey, but inwardly we're like, I'm resisting this idea. Solomon wants his son to remember that those commandments are an extension of the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God that we find throughout all of the scriptures. And when our obedience flows out of our appreciation for who God is and what he's done and what he's promised to do, uh, then his commands from the heart, and we obey those commands from the heart, and we're going to not obey them only out of obligation or out of fear. And the best way I know to trust my heart to God is to delight in his word and then ask ask God to allow me to, to soak in that word into the very depths of my heart so that my will starts to align with God's will. So how do I avoid becoming wise in my own eyes? Well, Solomon, I think, also is suggesting that we trust our decisions to God. Trust my decisions to God. Verses 5 and 6 make it clear that we're to trust all our decisions to God, not, not just the big ones. Notice we're to trust Him with all of our heart and to seek Him with all that we do. But far too often, what we do when we make our own decisions is we do it without consulting God. And then we ask Him to bless those decisions once we've made them. And it's true that God's created us with the ability to reason, and I believe He wants us to use that as part of our decision-making process. And so it may actually be a wise thing to make a list of pros and cons and when we need to make a decision to use that help to help us to make the decision and it's certainly wise to consider the possible consequences of our decisions and to use that to guide us 
But I think we should do that only, only after we've entrusted the decision and the process to God. So what does that look like in real life? Before I answer that question, I think it's, it's important to point out that most of the time, God is way more concerned about the how than the what. Let me explain that statement. We tend to want God to show us the specific path He wants us to take. Uh, and what, It's kind of like a road map to our lives. But God rarely seems to work in that way. But what He does provide us with is a lot of guidance on how we are to live our lives. Psalm 37, I think, is a really good example here. Look at verses 3 through 5 with me out of Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. He's addressing how here. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. So unfortunately, verse 4 in this passage, the middle one, is often taken out of context and used to teach that if we delight in God, God's going to give us whatever we want. But what I think he's really saying here, and we know in Hebrew poetry, is that um, if we view this verse in, in context, the idea here is that if I delight in God, he will give me desires that align with his purposes, his will, his thoughts. And so if I'm desiring myself in the Lord, I'm learning to shift towards what is it that God desires? What is it God wants? And like we find frequently in Hebrew poetry, trusting in God, uh, delighting in Him, uh, committing my way to Him, they're all parallel and related ideas. And the concepts are closely related to the idea of trusting my heart to God. So with that in mind, I'm going to give you a very simple process of how we can trust our decisions to God. It's really simple, okay? One, delight yourself in the Lord. And two, do what you want. Let me explain this. If you're truly delighting in the Lord, in God, then he's going to put the right desires in your heart and he's going to make your paths straight. So let me give you an illustration of that. Let's say you need to buy a new car. Maybe maybe not a brand new car. Maybe it's just a different car. The Bible won't tell you exactly what kind of car to buy, right? There weren't cars when the Bible was written. So except for the one car, right, the one Honda in verse uh, where it says, all the disciples were in one accord. I've been waiting to use that one my whole career. So there you go. So, okay, we're thinking about buying a car. How does Scripture give us guidance? So you pray and you ask God to guide you. You search the Scripture for principles about how to handle your finances. Again, the how question, not the what. How does God want us to handle our finances? And then once you've done that research in Scripture and you have an understanding of how God wants you to handle your finances, then you research all the things about a car and you buy whatever car you want to and you understand how God wants to handle you to handle your money. So wisdom that brings life trusts all of our decisions to the Lord. How else does Solomon suggest we avoid becoming wise in our own eyes? Again, another one is, trust my treasure to God. Trust my treasure to God. Although we don't live in an agricultural economy only, I mean, we have agriculture in the area, and that's a lot of what happens, but there's so much that happens in our economy that's not agriculture. Uh, like when Solomon lived, the general principle we, hear, we find here still applies. We honor God with the best parts of the first fruits of all the possessions that God entrusts to us. The whole idea that the wise way to get rich is to give our, idea, our, our wealth away 
is completely contrary to what the world tells us we should do. But isn't that exactly what Jesus told us to do? He says in Matthew six nineteen and 20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so as Jesus makes it very clear here, the riches we gain by giving away our wealth, especially when we invest it in God's kingdom, are not necessarily measured in dollars and cents, right? Okay, you know, literally they're measured in a different way. Neither Jesus nor Solomon are teaching anything that's even close to what we've heard being the prosperity gospel. But when we take the very best of the, the material possessions that God has given us, he's given to us for our stewardship, and we invest them in furthering God's kingdom rather than hoarding them for our own pleasure, we always receive a blessing that far outweighs any material possessions that we might gain by hanging on to those resources for our own selfish desires. So again, when we trust our treasure to God, we're entering into a wisdom that's otherworldly, but it's a truth that God wants us to understand. And then also, Solomon encourages us how to avoid becoming wise in our own eyes. And he says in the last few verses, 11 and 12, he's really communicating to us to trust my sin to God. To trust my sin to God. And that seems, if you not really don't understand God, that sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? It's impossible for any one of us to do the things that we've been talking about this morning perfectly. None of us can do that. None of us can trust our hearts, our decisions, our treasure to God on our own all the time. And at some point, we end up going back to what we think is wise in our own eyes, and we become foolish because we think we're wise. But the good news is that when we get off track, God loves us enough that he'll discipline us to encourage us to get us back on track. And those of us who are parents can certainly relate to this, right? When our children disobey, we discipline them. Not because we want to hurt them or because we want to cause them pain in their life, but because we love them and we don't want to let that dis- disobedience that's come in their life to become a lifestyle. A lifestyle that's going to lead to ruin or to, to bad things, harmful things to them. Well, God loves us even more than we love our own children. So he disciplines us in, as necessary in order to continue the work that he started in us when we made a decision to become a disciple of Christ, to, to be to, to become more like Jesus. And Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so even discipline, God uses even discipline to help us be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. I'll never forget the day when I had done something uh, bad and, and something wrong, and it led to a spanking by my dad. And I responded by saying, that didn't hurt. (laughs) Not the wisest thing I've ever said in my life. I acknowledge that. So, of course, the result was an even harder spanking at that point. And I'm pretty sure at some point in our lives that we've responded to God's discipline a little bit like that, too. And when we don't respond appropriately to the gentler discipline that God brings to us, He often has to resort to greater places of discipline to get our attention. And so obviously the the best thing to do is to respond the first time God brings some sin to our attention. Wisdom that brings life is choosing 
to trust God with our sin instead of hiding it, knowing that God's going to discipline us, but his discipline toward our sin will bring correction that brings us back to the path of abundant life. So today, I think we've seen from this passage, I'm never more foolish than when I think I'm wise. And as we've just said, all of us are prone to being foolish in all these areas. On our own, right, we're incapable of trusting God like we should. But fortunately, the blessing comes that comes from heeding these commands, it's not dependent on our obedience, but rather on the faithful work and the obedience of Jesus. He's the only human who has fully trusted God in every area of his life. And he's the only one who's worthy of all the blessings that come with that. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus took the penalty of our disobedience on himself on the cross so that we can enjoy God's blessings too. And that means the most foolish thing that we could do, possible, would be to try to approach God on our own terms or to try to earn his favor on our own. He's a holy God, and the only way that we can confidently approach him is to put our faith and our trust in Jesus alone. And when we do that, we become clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. And when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sin, but he sees his son instead. So if you've never made the decision to trust Jesus alone as the only way to God, won't you do that today? It's maybe the wisest thing you could ever choose to do. Perhaps you still have some questions about what that means or how to do that exactly and what that decision involves. And we want to make sure you have all the information. And so if you've considered that, we want you to consider even the cost of following Jesus before you make that decision. If you're interested, I invite you to talk to me or to Pastor Doug or Pastor Tyler or Stop by after the service to our prayer team. We would love to have a conversation with you and explain it to you. Just let us know that you're interested in doing that. And many of you here today have already made that decision. But every day you're faced with more decisions. Big decisions and some decisions that don't seem quite as significant. To some extent, I think our natural tendency is to think that we can handle all these decisions on our own. But as we've seen this morning, that's actually a very foolish thing to do. The wiser choice is to delight yourself in God, trust your heart and your decisions, and your treasure to Him, so that He can guide you into His